In the last few sermons, I mentioned that once we get to Babel, that there were five major themes that progressively develop, and that once you know what those themes are, you will understand the Bible significantly. There's actually six from Babel, seven if you count the beginning of Genesis. But I've woven rebellion, which is the first thing that carries through. I've woven rebellion and redemption throughout these other themes. But there are essentially seven themes that spread throughout the Bible. And once you understand what those seven themes are, you will find that almost every single story in the Bible fits into these seven themes. Rebellion is one. Redemption is one. Ones that we've hit since Babel are language, how God confused the language, created cultures from that confusion, and then redeemed those languages at Pentecost. We looked at why there's so many religions as God gave divine beings authority over human beings throughout the land, and, and why are they so many in the Old Testament are against Israel and then in the New Testament against Christians. We looked at the importance of land last week and why that's such a big deal in the Old Testament and how we should think about land in the New Testament. Last week we saw the pattern of spiritual warfare is a, a, a land, a people, and a supernatural being or a God, if you will. We looked at that. One of the reasons why we've done this series on spiritual warfare the way that we have is because many of us unintentionally have minimized spiritual warfare to simply us resisting the devil. But that's only a fraction of what spiritual warfare is in the Bible, at least. So this series was designed to help us understand what it is. And the only way that we can truly understand what spiritual warfare is to us is to know, well, what is spiritual warfare to God? We take our cues from God. What is spiritual warfare to him? I would even say at this point, my life as a Christian, a pastor here for 15 years, I would say I don't think you can even completely understand the gospel unless you understand what spiritual warfare is to God. I think we'll miss it. We'll miss something. You have to take into account passages like Psalm 82 that we've seen before, where God is Speaking, and it says this in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. For many of us, we think, well, there's no other gods but God, but God is comfortable in his word calling other divine beings gods. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. This is God correcting the divine beings that were over the other nations of the world. And he's saying, what are you doing? 
How long will you let this evil persist? He says, when will you rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked? They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. You have these people clueless. I gave you authority over these people, and they have no idea from their right hand to their left, morally speaking. He says, they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. Sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is God is offended. He's talking to the other gods, saying, what have you done? If you don't understand this dynamic in the Bible, then you will miss a significant component of what the Bible is about and what the gospel is. In John chapter 12, we saw Jesus saying this. When I asked the question a few weeks ago, why did Jesus think he was going to die? Here's what Jesus says in John 12, the night before the crucifixion. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? He starts off saying, I'm judging the world, and the ruler of this world will be cast out. Then he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John, the writer of that gospel, gives us an indication of what he meant in verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus was saying, now... I'm about to be crucified, and when that happens, the ruler of this world will be cast out. His authority will come to an end. And as a result of that, people will come to me. Jesus didn't come just to save us. He came to stop the powers of darkness that have destroyed us. The world here is spiritual, not Literal. Later on, a couple verses down, he says this, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, this is John 12, 47. He says, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. So you see, when Jesus says, now this world will be judged, he's not talking about humanity. He's talking about the gods who have been in authority over this world. Time is up. So I didn't come to judge humanity. I didn't come to judge people. I came to judge the cosmic forces of evil. I came to save people. But when I come back, I'm going to judge those people who rejected salvation. Jesus connected his coming to spiritual warfare. So I felt like, and Mike felt like, it would have been a disservice for us to begin in Ephesians 6 with putting on the whole armor of God without understanding why we need to put it on at all. So that leads us to the theme that comes out of Babel, the fifth thing today. Spiritual warfare is first and foremost God against the gods. So today, we ask the question, who are the gods? Who are they? 
Why are they in a war with our God? And why are we in a war with them? Who are these gods? Now remember, the goal of these sermons is not to be exhaustive, even though it will be a lot of information. It's to give you an understanding of this theme of God against the God so you see it and then you develop it on your own as you grow in your knowledge of the scriptures. What we're going to see today will not be new for those of you who have been paying attention to the series, but I trust that it will be helpful. With that in mind, let's begin. There are two questions we're going to answer. Who are these gods? And how does God redeem people for worshiping them? First, who are these gods? We go back to Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. We see this in verse 8, verse 8 and 9. So the Lord dispersed them there from over the face of all the earth, talking about people, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. We've looked at Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 10. It says, when the Lord, verse 8, 9, when the Lord, the Most High, gave to the nations their inheritance, talking about the Tower of Babel, what we just read in Genesis, he gave to the nations their inheritance. When he divided human, mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. But the Lord's people portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So we see that God divided up humanity according to particular sons of God. Sons of God are almost always described as angels in the Bible. Now, we've looked at this already, so I'm not going to go through all of that. If you weren't here, all those sermons are online. You are, you are free to check those out. But here we see that God divided up humanity and given sons of God divine beings authority and put them all over the world. But who are these gods that are over people and the land? The first time we even hear about another god in the Bible, the first time we even hear about it is in Genesis 31. And we read this, beginning in verse 17. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, is to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. This is the first mention of any other gods beside God. The first time an S is added to the word God. Up to this verse, it's always been God, Yahweh. And now we hear, oh, there are household gods. Laban has household gods. Who are these household gods? The scripture doesn't necessarily say. As it develops and moves on, we get to Genesis 35, beginning in verse 1. And here we see this, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. 
Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourself and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So we started with household gods from Laban, and now we see they're called foreign gods. This is the second time we hear about gods, but they're called foreign gods. This is a different name. Who are these gods? But up to this point, biblically speaking, we have no idea who these gods are. And we don't know how they came to worship them, at least from what the Bible tells us. By the time we get to the Red Sea, we know that the Israelites had been participating with the gods of Egypt because they were slaves for 400 years. And when God brings the Israelites through the Red Sea and then closes it on the Egyptians, Moses' sister Miriam breaks out into a song and in verse 11 of Exodus 15, here's what she sings. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Now, we at least know that when she sang this, she was comparing the God who just saved them to the gods of the Egyptians. She just witnessed the God that they just met punished the, the Egyptians, bring them through the Red Sea. She watched the Red Sea close on Egypt so much for their gods, stopping her God from that, and she breaks into a song. And she says, who are like you, O Lord, among the gods? So at least we know those gods are compared to the God that she just got saved by. The narrative continues, and we see Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, having a conversation with him, which will lead to him saying, listen, you got to make small groups, man. That's too much for you to do. <laughs> this is where small groups came from, Jethro. We should call people. Next year, we'll be calling our groups Jethro groups, because that's who invented them, the J group. I like it already. Thanks to Benjamin. In Exodus 18, we see this brief conversation. We, we enter into the middle of a conversation between Moses and his father-in-law. And Jeth It says this in Exodus 18, beginning in verse 10. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So here Jethro is revealing, hey, I've been aware of who these other gods are. But those gods deal differently with their people than your God does with you. So we're worshiping your God. There's a clear distinction between gods here. 
And it becomes more obvious that different people groups had gods that they worshipped. And now Israel has their own God. So when we get to Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments, it makes sense that God begins his law to his people with these words. In verse 2, Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath and that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting in the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Out of all the things that God could have told them and warned them about, he started with the most important thing. Do not worship other gods. But who are the other gods. And where is Satan? Where is the dude from Genesis 3? Why is he noticeably absent, by name at least, in the Old Testament? Where is he? As God begins moving Israel into the new land, the warnings of worshiping the gods of those lands become stronger. In Exodus 23, beginning in verse 28, here's what God says. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out. Listen to this. this, is a, this is, listen to this intentionality of God. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. So listen to this. God, why don't you just wipe everybody out? Because if I did that, then all the wild beasts and stuff would come after you. So these people serve a purpose. So I'm going to leave them there to help you not have to fight other fights. So by keeping them there, I'm actually protecting you. But because I fight for you, you're good. Don't worry about them. Just don't worship the other gods that they serve. Verse 31, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant. That's a contract, an agreement. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the first time that the gods are identified with a particular people group. The gods of the Philistines, the Hittites, the Hivites. And they're also connected to the land that they live. He's saying, don't let their gods 
dwell in your land, which means their gods are in their land where you're going. But in your part of the land, don't let their gods dwell in your land. But how do you let their gods dwell in your land when you worship those gods? They will dwell in your land. You invite them to come. This is the first time that connection is made. God is progressively building the reality of the gods and starts to develop who they are. And he's embracing and explaining his concern. His greatest concern is the worship of other gods. But who are these gods? And what land did God put them on? If you have even read through the Old Testament one time even, or even certain sections of the Old Testament, you will have heard a number of different gods' names, but there are six gods that stand out specifically. Six gods that are the most pervasive in the Old Testament. They are all over the place, and you will see at times in different passages, these gods' names, the people that are worshiping them, and sometimes Israel, God's people, the Israelites, also worshiping these gods. I'm not going to list, I'm going to list the scriptures, I'm not going to read them, but I'm going to explain to you where, who each of these gods are and a little bit about them, and I'll give you scripture references so that you know. The first god that many of you will be familiar with all of these is Baal. Baal. That's the new, he, he's the new Siri back then. I'm getting ready to change my Siri voice to Cleveland. <laughs> change the Siri's voice to Cleveland after the, after, the show, after, the, after the Sunday. Baal, geographical location is Canaan and Phoenicia. You can find Baal in, in scriptures like Judges 2, 11 through 13, 1 Kings 16, 31 and 32, 1 Kings 18, you will see Baal there. Baal was the principal god of the Canaanites, worshipped primarily for his control over fertility, rain, and agriculture. Followers of Baal often engaged in these fertility rituals where they offered human sacrifices. So these guys worshipped, but they also said to worship these gods, we're going to offer human sacrifices. And they were particularly children. The worship of Baal was a reoccurring issue for the Israelites who often, for whatever reason, were tempted to worship that God. Despite the fact that God that they worshiped never once called for the destruction of their children. Asherah. Geographical location, Canaan. Canaan was a big area. Asherah, you can find Asherah in Judges 6, 25 through 30, 1 Kings 14, 1 Kings 15. Asherah was a mother goddess in ancient Canaanite religion, often associated with fertility, nature, and love. She was sometimes considered to be the consort of El, the supreme god in the Canaanite pantheon. Israelites worshipped Asherah, and you heard these things, Asherah poles, right? They would put these poles up, these high poles up, 
or these trees in her honor. They would worship him. You may be familiar in Judges with God telling Gideon, man, tear down those Asherah poles. And Gideon being like, uh, can I do it at night when nobody's watching? Dagon, geographical location, Philistine, cities like Gaza and Ashdod. Dagon, as you can find in Judges 16, most famous would be 1 Samuel 5. This is where the Philistines kidnapped the Ark of the Covenant, took it into, uh, put it right beside Dagon, their God. They came in the priest the next morning. Dagon was laying face down. They picked him back up, came in the next day. Dagon was laying face down, head cut off, arms cut off. And they thought, give the, give the ark back to the Israelites. <laughs> Send it back. The ark came back. David was dancing, and his wife got offended. Like, why are you dancing? You're the king of Israel. He said, man, I'm going to be a fool right now because the ark is coming back. The presence of God is coming back. The scripture tells us that the, the priest, the, the Philistine priest, where Dagon dropped and where the ark was, would pass over that land. You know why? Because that land was now holy ground that belonged to Israel. Yahweh had defeated their God, so they walked around that land. They couldn't walk over it anymore. Oh, the last week. Molech. Molech, geographical location. Ammon. Molech is in Leviticus 18, 21. 2 Kings 23, Jeremiah 32. Molech was an Ammonite god associated with child sacrifice, particularly for firstborn children. Man, if time permitted, I would say a lot about this, but I have to move on. There's a lot to discuss. But Molech wanted the firstborn children. He was often portrayed as a large bronze statue with a furnace in his belly into which the children were thrown as offerings. The worship of Molech was strictly forbidden by Yahweh, and the Israelites were warned against adopting this practice. But they were tempted to worship this God. But many of us, we would almost self-righteously judge that. But there isn't a person in this room who is not tempted to worship other gods. But the gods are not asking for your children they're asking for your allegiance, your time, your money, your interests. They're asking for your intellect, your devotion. Ashtoreth, geographical location, Canaan. Isn't it interesting that God is moving Israel into the land of Canaan? <laughs> around all these gods? We'll talk about that in a little bit. He's in Judges 2.13. Actually, he was a goddess. She's a she. First Kings 11, First Kings, you can find it. So she was a Canaanite goddess of love, war, and fertility. She was considered the counterpart to the Babylonian goddess Ishtar and the Phoenix goddess Ashtar. Ashtar was sometimes worshipped alongside Baal, and her followers engaged in sacred prostitution and other fertility rituals. See, you know in the Old Testament, many of you know that women were often barren. 
And so when it talks about God opening up the womb of certain women and them being, that was basically God saying, the gods that you worship can't give you children. They actually take your children. I'm going to open up the womb and let you have children. That length, that's intentional, those stories. Those are small moments of redemption when God is doing that. The last God that is the most prominent throughout the Old Testament is Chemosh. Geographical location, Moab. Chemosh is in Numbers 21, 1 Kings 11, 1 Kings, uh, Jeremiah 48 and 13. And Chemosh was the national god of the Moabites and was sometimes associated with the Ammonites. He was considered a god of war and sometimes associated with child sacrifice. The Moabites who occasionally came into conflict with the Israelites worshiped Chemosh. Now, I can't prove what I'm about to say from the Bible. But here's what I honestly think. And I don't have time to develop fully why because we got a lot more to cover. But you notice that all these gods want the children. You notice that? They all want children. They want the children of the people. Some of them the firstborn. I believe this is a retaliation for God going to Egypt and taking the firstborn of their God, their, their kin. So now God, these gods are now taking these children. And don't forget that the enemy has no idea who the seed is going to be. So the killing of children proves at least it's not that one. The theme of gods and geographical location continues in significant fashion in the Old Testament into the New Testament. In Daniel, though, we see a twist. In Daniel chapter 10, we see this dichotomy, this gods and people and land. We see this twist. Here's what we read in Daniel chapter 10. Beginning in verse 12, it says, fear not. So let me give you back up. Daniel had been praying to God and waiting for an answer. And here's what happens with an angel that he interacts with. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. So in this little passage, an angel tells Daniel that a powerful supernatural being stopped him from delivering the answer to Daniel's prayer. This is a significant development because up to this point, it's really just been God against the gods and, and the gods, gods seemingly having no problem. But then you hear, hey, I was held up for three weeks by a supernatural being. He's called the prince of Persia. Now, by Daniel 10, the world power at that time was Persia. The Medo-Persian Empire, led by Cyrus the Great, overthrew and conquered Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar in 539 B.C. So this angel is telling Daniel that this supernatural being that is powerful, that is the being connected to the current world power, 
He's called the Prince of Persia. And he has authority over the people and the nation. Now, modern-day Persia is what we would call Iran. But then he mentions that Michael, who is one of the chief priests, a powerful angel on the side of God, helps him. Continuing in Daniel 10, verse 19, he says this, And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Now, I really want to press into this, but I can't. I really can't. But let me just say a couple things. We will come back to this briefly. Another sermon. The angel tells Daniel that when he goes out, the, priest, the prince of Greece will come. At that time, when he said that, Greece was not in play. Greece was not in play. They were a nation, but they were just, they were just there. It was the, the, the Persians had were the world power. And when someone's the world power, you have no idea how long they're going to be the world power. It just looks like they're running everything. So he says, the prince of Greece will come. But Greece wasn't in play. So what is he doing? He's giving Daniel a prophetic view of the future. The next world power, which was Greece, many of you have heard of Alexander the Great. He was, the, he was Greek. He was the next world power. And he's saying that there's a prince, a supernatural being in charge of over Greece, the next world power. He's giving him a, a picture of the future, which means that God, the God that he serves, is the one orchestrating it. Because how could he know that the prince of Greece is coming without someone telling him? Greece didn't come for hundreds of years. And he also shows there's a hierarchy. He's a prince. This isn't just an angel. He's a prince. A prince is a powerful supernatural being that will have jurisdiction over a people and a land that will take over the world. This one commentator says this about this scene. These statements are generally understood to be symbolic, the prince, symbolic references to the spiritual battles and struggles that take place behind the scenes of earthly conflicts involving spiritual beings who are somehow associated with the nations of Persia and Greece. If a prince is given to a nation that will rule the known world for a time, did that mean that different nations have different gods, even different sins that are connected to that god? We can't get into that right now, but we will come back to it. He does mention this, though. He mentions that in verse 21, that Michael is your prince. So Michael is considered the prince of Israel. 
So, so make sure you understand what's happening here. There are supernatural beings with significant power over people who work through human conflict, take over the world, and, and they're different, the Prince of Greece, Prince of Persia. Michael is your prince, the Prince of Israel, and he fights for you. And Michael is one of the chief princes. So there's a hierarchy here. There's a hierarchy of evil and a hierarchy of righteousness. To equate a prince with Michael, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Even though the religious landscape in the New Testament changes, deities are still connected to locations. We'll just look at one of these. In Acts, in Acts 19, we see this. About that time, there arose no little, no little disturbance concerning the way, which is what Christians were called initially, the way, because Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. They were called the way at first. Then they were called Christians, which was a derogatory term that became a term of endearment. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus and Macedonians who were Paul's campaigns and travel. So here you have Paul's preaching the gospel. His people are attacked defending the goddess Diana in Ephesus. So this carries into the New Testament, this theme of God giving divine beings authority over a particular people of the land is pervasive. But where is Satan? The Old Testament is replete with other gods. But where is he? And how does God redeem all of this? Well, in order to answer that, we have to look at one more type of gods that humanity worshiped. And God gave humanity over to these gods. He said it specifically. In a sermon two weeks ago, we read a passage from Deuteronomy 4 that explains another side of the gods. And we read this in verse 19 of Deuteronomy 4, verse 19 and 20. And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So here God is saying there's another group of gods that people worship. And these gods are the sun and the moon and the stars, nicknamed the host of heaven. 
or summarize. We see the host of heaven. These are people worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars. This theme is pervasive in the Old Testament. Now, we read months ago or so, two months ago, we read some extra biblical literature from Enoch, first Enoch. And in first Enoch 8, that's when we learned that there were angels who were teaching humanity astrological signs and how to worship these gods. And it took off. It took off. Samuel Macaulay Jackson, who wrote in a book called The New Chafe Herzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge, Embracing Biblical, Historical, Doctrinal, and Practical Theology and Biblical, Theological, and Ecclesiological Biography from the Earliest Times to the Present Day. That's the name of the book. The things I do for my church. The lengths, the heights to which I will find resources. That is the name of the book. That title alone has me ready to go on, 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 on sabbatical. Here's what he says. The Pleiades were worshipped in Babylonia, and the name occurs in incantation text, that of a group of demons, possibly represented in Canaan by Beersheba. The sun, moon, and Venus were thought of as in control of the zodiacal signs, and so, and, and so of all the influences that affect on the earth, increase and decay, light and darkness, cold and heat, light, life and death. In other words, the sun, moon, and stars who are, who are connected to demons were seen as by people to control all of these things. Increase, decay, light and darkness, cold and heat, life and death. He says, in Egypt, star worship was... In historical times, not that of the star itself, but of the divinity conceived of animating it. So they weren't worshiping the stars, but a God that they thought was in control of the stars in Egypt. That this is a developed conception is at once evident and points to the earlier belief in the life and divinity of the heavenly body itself. The fact of a certain type of star worship is established by the figuring of the deities of Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Mars, and Venus, so he's saying that in Egypt, they worshiped gods that they thought created these stars and the planets. And that theme is pervasive. The theme of sun, moon, and stars, the host of heaven, is in the Bible, and it serves two purposes at least of God. One, that said God gives humanity those gods to worship because they wanted to worship those instead of him. But also God is mocking the godhood of those elements because he alone is God over the sun, moon, and stars. These two narratives run side by side. They run concurrent in the Bible. Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 2, 2 through 5, he says this. If there is found among you with any of your towns that the Lord your God has given you, a man, a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God and transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and then it's told you and, and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently, and if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done such a thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. This is how seriously God takes the worship of sun, moon, and stars. 
If you find anyone among you worshiping them, bring them out of the gates and kill them. And kill them. Effectively saying, their gods cannot stop their death, if I say so. In Jeremiah 8, verses 1 through 3, he says, At that time, declares the Lord, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of its officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, these are all his people, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem shall be brought out of their tombs, and they shall be spread out before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they loved and served, which they have gone after and which they have sought and worshipped. And they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family and all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts. Why is God so offended at the worship of sun, moon, and stars? Because those were the first gods that were introduced to people that they just embraced. And so God takes it really personal when you worship the things that he created and you give it to other gods the glory instead of him. says this in Isaiah 24, verses 21 and 23, says this, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth, and, and on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished. The moon will be confounded, and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders." Why would the sun be ashamed and the moon be confounded? What sins did they commit? You see, God isn't talking about natural elements. When we read sun, moon, and stars, the day will be darkened and the third of the stars will fall out of the sky. We think, oh, it's a scientific statement and we haven't seen that in human history, but God isn't talking about the natural elements. He's talking about when they will be darkened, when the moon turns to blood, when the stars fall out of the sky, he's talking about the authority and power of these gods will be gone when I shake the earth. He's not worried about the natural elements. What sin did the sun commit? What is the sun ashamed of? I mean, Lord, I just shined every day. That's what you told me to do. <laughs> what is the sun going to say? Well, Lord, what am I? What, what? There are times I, I was trying to teach my kids to understand the gospel when they were younger. So when one of them did something, I would say, all right, you guys are punished for it. And they'd be like, Poppy, what did we do? We didn't do it. He did it. I said, I know, but you guys are going to take the punishment for this one. They would get offended. Then I would say, all right, guys, hold on, hold on. Let me explain to you why I said that. Because the same thing you're saying is what Jesus did for us. He took the punishment that we deserve and what we did. So I use that to explain them to the kids. They still didn't stop crying because they didn't realize I was saying, no, you're not in trouble. It was a tactic. I was trying to help you understand the gospel. Did that one time. Didn't work. Wasn't doing that one again. Great idea, though. It was great in thought, though. So parents, don't try that one. My son's like, what did I do wrong? What did the son do? He didn't do anything. God's not talking about natural elements, destroying the sun. 
when he uses that language, that language is intentional. It's iconography because he knows that people around the world, whenever they hear sun, moon, and stars, they think God. So whenever I talk about sun, moon, and stars, I talk about how those gods are not gods. I mean, they're too small. He's not talking about that. There are a number of passages that if we had time, we could read again. This is a theme in and of itself of sun, moon, and stars, and God, I will block this. I will shake the foundations of the earth and the stars. Will that language is replete in the Old Testament. So then how does God redeem that? How do you redeem people who worship the sun, moon, and stars? How does he redeem that? Well, we know here we've defined redemption as rebellion reversal. So how does he redeem people who worship sun, moon, and stars? God is wild. He's wild. Listen to this. So redemption starts people-wise with Abraham, right? Now, Genesis 24-2 tells us something about Abraham that, that we don't get. I mean, Josh, Joshua 24-2 tells us something about Abraham that we don't get when we just read Genesis, the story of Abraham. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this 24-2, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Right? So here you have other gods that they serve. They serve false gods. This is what he's saying. They served other gods. Now, Abraham is from the Chaldeans, right? Well, the Chaldeans were notorious for astral worship. The Chaldeans are essentially the Babylonians. This is Nebuchadnezzar and those folks. So when you get to Daniel 4, you read this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, he has this dream, and he's concerned about it. And here's what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies of the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all of the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make the dream known to me. So here he takes Abraham. Abraham's people are star worshipers. And God begins redemption with him. Now, it's progressive. It starts in Genesis 12. Where he says, Abraham, leave your land. We talked about that last week. But listen to what God uses as an illustration for Abraham to come to faith, a star worshiper. Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and my heir, the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, God, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my own household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Make sure you understand what's happening here. God takes a pagan star worshiper and then tells him, your descendants will be as numerous as 
the stars in the sky, which you have been known to worship. So that's how redemption starts. I'm going to use the imagery and the worship that you have and show you that the stars that you worship will be your descendants, analogically speaking. That's how it starts. Oh, but it gets better. It begins there, and this, this imagery remains. We get to Joseph in Genesis 37. Now, Joseph is the grandson of Abraham, right? The great-grandson of Abraham. And here's what happens. He has this dream. Here's what he says. Verse 37, chapter 37, verse 9. Then, the, then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I, your mother, and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, the dream was interpreted by them as, you know, Jacob the, the sun and his wife the moon and his brothers of the 11 stars. But the iconography is deeper. You see, Joseph is two of his sons will become two of the tribes of Israel. So God is giving Joseph a dream using the iconography that is popular among the Egyptians. And then Joseph, because of this dream, will be sold to the Egyptians who love this iconography, who God turns it around to show them this actually does happen because God puts me in charge, second in charge of Egypt, and when the famine comes, here comes all my family looking to me. But the iconography is that, that God is the one who rules the sun, moon, and stars. It keeps going. We get to Satan. At least we believe it's about Satan in the Old Testament. Isaiah 14 Verse 12 and 13, how are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. All of this language. Oh, you're the, you're the day star, right? You're the son of dawn. All these things that they worship. It keeps going and going and going. And then we get to the New Testament. We get to the New Testament. And it keeps going. Now keep in mind that people, the Gentile world, were star worshipers, and God gave, fine, you can have these gods that you want to worship. When we get to the New Testament, we see two things happen. One, Satan's on the scene. He's on the scene. He was noticeably absent in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, he's here. We don't hear about Baal that much, Asherah, Chemosh, Molech, Ashtoreth, none of them. It's all about Satan. So why does he become the central theme of evil in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament it was various gods? Why is it him and no longer them? Well, first, we have to remember that the prophetic promise of the curse came to him in Genesis 3. 
after Adam and Eve bit the fruit and it was clear that the serpent had deceived them, remember what God said to him? He said this to the serpent and to Satan in Genesis 3. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity, hatred between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So the prophetic judgment and the curse was against Satan, not Baal or Chemosh or all these other people. The language here is important. Satan is given offspring. But these offspring are not just human, they're human and divine. We heard it earlier in John 12, 31, that Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world. We know from Revelation 12, 7, that it says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So all these angels are now underneath Satan. They are also his children. But it's not just divine, it's human. 2 Timothy 2 24 through 26 tells us this, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here's Paul telling Timothy on behalf of God, be patient when you talk to unbelievers because they have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. So they are his offspring. We know that he was given the kingdoms of the world. Matthew 4, he says this to Jesus. Again, the devil took him, verse 8, to a high, very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give if you will fall down and worship me. We know in the Luke's translation, he said, these kingdoms have been given to me and I can give them to whoever I want. So he's the ruler of the world. So why does he show up in the New Testament? Did he become the ruler of the world later or from the beginning? We'll talk about it next week. <laughs> but I will say this. In the New Testament, the general of righteousness shows up. And he must do battle with the general of unrighteousness, of evil. Imagine watching a, a fight scene, one of those Lord of the Rings type scenes, right? And you see the general on the bad side locks eyes with the general on the good side. And everyone's fighting around him and it's slow motion. And they're just looking at each other. And they realize, it's you. It's you that I want. And they start walking towards each other. And you're getting goosebumps like, oh, they about to get it in. And people are coming and fighting them. They dodging stuff, stabbing people out the way. They're not even worried about it. They're just walking towards each other, ducking, spin around, slice him. But my eyes are on this dude. This is what's happening. The general is fighting the general. When Jesus shows up, he's coming to fight with Satan. Baal, Chemosh, Molech, Ashtoreth, Lilith, and any other God that you can name, those are the flunkies. I'm coming for you. The prophetic curse was you. And Satan says, okay, you're here. It's time now. Let me resurface. More can be said about that. But how does God 
redeem people who have been worshiping the star. When we see it starts with Abraham, here's the language. Keep in mind, humanity was given over to worship the sun, moon, and stars because of their rebellion. Look at three quick scenes. First scene, Matthew chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where, was the, where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by a prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me a word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream to return, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Remember that God is intentional. So to show his authority over the astral elements and that he's going to reclaim the nations, God uses a star, the very means of pagan worship. He uses a star to reveal to Gentiles First, that the Savior is coming. The Gentiles went to the Jews and said, where is he? They were like, where is who? <laughs> the Messiah. What do you mean? How do you know he was there? Because of the star. So God begins redemption. He introduces Jesus through the astrological means that humanity used to choose other gods to worship. He says, I'm going to invite you back by using the very means in which you disobeyed me. So instead of casting you out by stars, I'm bringing you back using a star. Remember, he said to Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So he reveals Abraham as, Abraham's descendant as a star in the sky. Second scene, Mary image of Mary in Revelation 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So here you have in a vision 
that's given by God, a woman with the astrological elements of pagan worship surrounding her as she's pregnant to give birth. There isn't a theologian, no matter what denomination, that does not interpret this as a symbolic or, uh, uh, or analogical kind of apocalyptic literature of the birth of Jesus and Satan trying to oppose that. And if we're talking about human sort of events, then Satan working through Herod to kill the child. And this woman has the sun, moon, and stars around her. Many would say the stars represent the 12 tribes of Israel. But the iconography of sun, moon, and stars is intentional by God. He's demonstrating sun, moon, and stars have no authority or power over him. And if you believe in the sun, moon, and stars, cool, look how they submit to me. When Satan tempted Jesus in Luke 4, and he said, all these kingdoms have been given to me, I can give them to whoever I want. Even if you didn't know anything, just by logic, you could be like, well, whoever gave you the kingdoms is more powerful than you, so why would I worship you? Who's the dude that gave you the kingdoms to give to me? That's the person I want to meet. You are the middleman. More on that later. Last scene, Revelation 22, beginning of verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were, of the, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb who will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Verse 16 of Revelation 22, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So, so much for Satan being star of the dawn, O morning star. Jesus is saying when it's all said and done, there won't be a sun, a moon, or stars to tempt anyone to worship them because I will be the light that they see. And I am the only God that's left standing. There are no stars to worship except Jesus. So God is taking this theme of sun, moon, and stars that has been what has offended him throughout human history and said, let me redeem that. The sun, moon, and stars that were used as worship that I told people to stay away from are now the means in which I invite people to believe in me. He's not afraid of the gods and neither should you or I be. We should not be afraid of the gods that people worship in our nation, at your job, in your neighborhoods, in your families, afraid to stand up for righteousness because of what these people will say to you. The gods that they worship 
are under the God that you worship if you're a Christian. It's interesting that God, last thing I'll say is this, the thing I find the most amusing of all of this, well, one of them, is that so God divided up the land and put people and gods there. And what's interesting to me about that is none of those gods were able to control the whole world. They were only given a piece of land. You go here, you go here, you go here, you go here, you go there. They couldn't handle the whole world. They were only given a portion of the land. Satan couldn't handle the whole world because God took a small people that were a slave and slowly preserved enough of them over time, thousands of years, until one guy came, told 12 guys to join him, and then they turned the world upside down. That little bit of people in the kingdom that belongs to Satan couldn't stop. And so today we have Christianity as the major world religion. From one guy, 12 people, a little nation of Israel carry through. If you're a Christian in the room, you're little. But when you believe in God, you can change the world. Do not be afraid of the gods that they worship. Do not be afraid of their tactics, their anger, their accusations. You don't need to be. They accused Jesus, and look who he was. Let's pray.